You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now open God's Word to our Scripture reading this morning. 1 Corinthians 3. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred. And you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then... No more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. So turn in our Bibles to Mark 4, 26 to 34. That would be our text for this morning. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. 
first the stalk, then the head, and the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Again he said, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Beloved congregation, Jesus Christ. As we've been traveling through the gospel according to Mark, we've usually gone verse by verse through each passage. Begin with the first verse of a text and then work our way systematically to the last verse. And that way of doing things usually works well. However, this morning I'm going to depart from that somewhat. Today we're, we're looking at a couple of parables about the kingdom of God. And here I think it actually makes sense to begin with the last two verses of our text. In verse 33, Mark relates that Christ spoke many parables to them as much as they could understand. There is enigma or mystery in the parables, but these words too are also sort of enigmatic, mysterious. First of all, who are those to whom Jesus was speaking? Well, from the next verse, verse 34, which tells us that he explained everything to his disciples, from that verse we know that it can't be just the disciples. In other words, Jesus spoke these parables to the, to the crowds. And as we've noted before, these were crowds of Jewish people, the people of God's covenant. But then Mark editorializes further and says that Jesus spoke these parables as much as they could understand. That's translated better as, as much as they could hear or as much as they could listen. That's what you'll find in other translations, such as the RSV, the ESV, the NASB, the New King James Version, and others. As much as they could hear. You'll remember from earlier in chapter 4 that the parables were not preached and taught by Christ so that everyone could have a better understanding. In fact, according to Jesus, the primary purpose of parables was to leave unbelieving covenant members under the judgment of God. So when Mark says here that Christ preached the word in parables as much as they could hear, we have to understand those words in that framework, that context. What it means is that they heard the preaching of Christ whenever they had the opportunity. As much as they could hear, they heard him. His words, yes, his words went into their ears. But that doesn't mean that his words went into their hearts, into their minds, that his words were appropriated by them, made their own. 
doesn't mean they believed or understood. And that's confirmed by the next verse, verse 34, which tells us that when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything to them. Now, if along with all the other people, they had understood the parables, why did Jesus have to explain it to them? You see, it only makes sense to understand that Christ spoke in parables and people listened. They heard it externally, but they didn't really get it. Even his disciples needed an explanation. Verse 34 also tells us that he didn't say anything without a parable. What that means is simply that Christ was regularly preaching with parables. If we look elsewhere in Mark, look ahead, we do see Christ speaking to the crowds. And there are times where he doesn't use parables or parabolic language. All this tells us is that this was his usual, typical manner of preaching. And this kind of preaching fit with where his ministry was going at this moment. The animosity between Christ and the Jewish leaders was building, become increasingly clear that Jesus did not meet the expectations that the Jewish people had for a Messiah. His parables continued to confound and confuse people. And what this does is this paves the way for His suffering and death. His death for you. Let's now consider two of those parables. A pair of parables which pictures the kingdom of God. Now, if I were in your shoes sitting in the pew, I'd probably be thinking... What does the kingdom of God have to do with us, with me? Kingdom of God sounds rather high, lofty, esoteric. It's disconnected from our daily lives. What does the kingdom of God have to do with the problems I'm facing in my life, whatever those might be? That's a fair question that people might ask when they hear that these parables are about the kingdom of God. Well, we're going to begin by defining the kingdom of God. And once we do that, we can get into these parables and then we can see how the kingdom of God is very much connected to our daily lives. Not only to the problems and the challenges we face, but it's also connected to the blessings that we receive. So what is the kingdom of God? of God. It's not the first time that we've encountered this expression in Mark's Gospel. Back in chapter 1, Jesus went into Galilee preaching that the kingdom of God had come near. He was speaking about the rule or the reign of God. And what that involves is a number of things. First of all, God saving a people for Himself. Saving them from sin, from the effects of sin, from His own wrath against sin. It involves God gathering those people who are saved into His church. And it also involves creation. It involves a redeemed creation. 
It is the reign of God about to break into the world through the person and work of Christ. And the Lord Jesus said that this kingdom of God, which he was proclaiming, which he was announcing, was good news, which people had to believe. They had to repent and believe. That earlier in chapter 4, he told his disciples that the secret or the mystery of the kingdom of God had been given to them. When we looked at that, we saw that the kingdom of God is something that turns human expectations and understandings upside down. The rule or the reign of God comes in paradoxes, in things that seem to be totally absurd and inconsistent when considered from a a worldly, earthly, just purely horizontal point of view. Oh, there's much more to say about the kingdom of God. It has many sides and many angles. But at its root, it's about God as king and about people as his subjects and how those two relate to one another. This is what we need to keep in mind when we come to verse 26 and the Lord Jesus begins his first parable to picture the kingdom of God. He says that it's like a man scattering seed on the ground. Right away our thoughts are drawn back to the parable of the sower earlier in chapter 4. There too, a man was sowing seed on the ground. The seed, if you remember, was the Word of God. Here too, we don't have any reason to see it as being something different. The seed is the Word preached. Nights and days go by. The man follows his usual routine. And as the time goes by, the seed sprouts and it grows. But the man has no idea how it happens. He was just carrying out his daily routine and and the crop grows. The man has nothing to do with it. The growth is a mystery. Verse 28 develops this further. All by itself, literally, automatically, the soil produces grain. First the stalks pop up, then the heads appear, then finally the full-grown plant with the full amount of grain in the head. It's a surprising amount of power in the combination of the soil and the seed. And then in verse 29 we find the climax <clears throat> Excuse me. Find the climax of the parable. When the grain is ripe, the farmer goes out with his sickle. And for you children who don't know what a sickle is, it's a big knife. It's a, a curved knife, a curved handheld agricultural tool for harvesting grain. Farmers in the old days, times of Jesus, would take these big knives out into the field and then they would use it to cut the grain. The farmer cuts the grain because the harvest time has come. Harvest time means the waiting is over and the time for joy and celebration and thankfulness has arrived. Now what does this parable tell us about the kingdom of God? Well, the the parable of the sower and then also the, the passage about the lamp that we looked at last week Those passages put all the emphasis on human responsibility. 
There was a call with the parable of the sower to be good soil. There was a call with the the lamp, a call to examine what the light of the Word exposes in our hearts. But here, the emphasis is not on us, but on what God does. On divine sovereignty. Yes, there is a man who scatters the seed. But how does that seed grow? Paul answers that very question in 1 Corinthians 3, 6. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God made it grow. When it comes to the kingdom of God, when it comes to seeing people come to salvation in Christ, to belonging to His church, and to all the other wonderful things that belong with that. Ultimately, only God can do it. We might think that it falls into our hands to to change other people. But only God makes the seed grow. Only God is in control of His kingdom. And when God does make that seed grow, there's mystery. We don't know how it happens. And here we can think of what Christ says in John 3.8. After telling Nicodemus that he must be born again, Christ says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. God's kingdom work is inscrutable, unfathomable. You can't bottle it up with a a formula or some kind of technique or some kind of program. God does His own work in His own way. And it's beyond man to understand it, let alone for man to manipulate or to manipulate God. The seed grows and its growth surprises us. When the seed finds good soil, it slowly and imperceptibly grows and develops. And if you're standing there I don't think anybody would ever do this, but if you're standing there and you're watching carefully, second by second, minute by minute, 24 hours a day with your eyes on that plant, it happens so slowly. But if you've just carried on with your daily business, a month passes by, maybe two months or three months, and you look and behold, so much has changed. Wow! You've had that with your family too, I'm sure. You have family in Alberta or Ontario or wherever else and and they come and visit and they can't believe how much your kids have grown since they last saw them. Their growth doesn't take you by surprise because you've been with them all that time. But there is surprising growth and development. And it's the same way with the kingdom of God in people's lives. When considered from a certain perspective. And someday the harvest is going to come. The day is coming when Christ will return. 
That day, our Lord Jesus tells us, will be a surprise for everyone except for the Father. And He will harvest all the grain that's been growing in the field. And here too, the emphasis is on what God does. The grain doesn't harvest itself. The soil has nothing to do with bringing in the harvest. It's something that God does. It's something that Christ will do. Now, perhaps by now you can begin to sense how this parable about the kingdom of God connects with your daily life, meets you where you are. For one thing, God is God. And as God, He is sovereignly in control of everything that happens. A while back, a sociologist studied the religious beliefs of American teenagers. Now, perhaps you've heard about this before. The sociologist found that nearly every American teenager believes exactly the same thing about God. Didn't matter if they were Roman Catholic, Jewish, Muslim, Christian. Didn't matter what church they went to or even if they went to church. According to this study, nearly every American teenager believes in what this sociologist called moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, that means that they believe that religion exists primarily to give us rules to live by. Therapeutic, well, religion provides therapy for when you have problems. And deism, deism is an old belief, still around, belief that God is like a clockmaker. He wound up the world and he set it far away from him. He lets it run, but God is not really involved with it. However, in this moralistic therapeutic deism, there's good news because God is like a spiritual 911. If you need him, you can call and he will come running to help you, to try to help you with whatever emergency you're facing. Now this, this study was about teenagers, but it seems pretty likely that it applies equally to adults and then not only to Americans, but also to Canadians. What about you? Do you believe the good news that God is King? Do you believe that God is involved with every detail of your life, down to the very, literally, down to the very hairs of your head, as Jesus says? Do you believe that God has a hand of sovereign power and a heart of fatherly love for you? Believing that, let's take it one step further in the direction this parable goes. God is sovereign in His kingdom. And you're in that kingdom. But there are also others. God has sown His seed all over the covenant community. He uses people to spread that seed, especially through the preaching of the Word. 
And the growth that results is entirely God's work. It is the kingdom of God. And when we face trials or challenges, we need to remind ourselves of that fact. God is king. We are not. When you're dealing with a family member whose sin makes life difficult, you can't make the seed sown, produce a crop. Pray to God who can. When you're faced with trials of poor health, you can't make yourself believe more that God is not only your king, but also a loving father. Pray to God who can, who can work that in you with His Spirit and with His Word. So many ways we are helpless. But God is sovereign and powerful to cause growth and development in His kingdom, whether that's with you or with someone else. God is in control. And then also consider that if there's something burdening you right now or when something will burden you this week or next week or whenever, we have the promise of future glory. The harvest of our Lord Jesus is coming. Brothers and sisters, that's something for us to look forward to. Here on this earth, the kingdom of God is breaking in, but it's not fully here. There is what we call an already but not yet aspect to the kingdom. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Your kingdom come. It's here, but it isn't. There's an already but not yet. And that's also part of the reason why at this moment there is suffering for those who acknowledge God as King. The already but not yet is part of the reason why there are trials and difficulties in our lives. But the harvest day is coming. And when that day comes, it will signal the full arrival of God's kingdom in all its glorious splendor. It will signal that God's kingdom is totally here with all its blessings. Revelation 21.4 tells us what we can look forward to. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. We suffer here in this age. We endure trials here. But when the harvest comes, I assure you, there will be relief. There will be glory for all the subjects of God's King. So what should we do? But eagerly look forward to that and also pray for it to come quickly. And the Lord Jesus tells us the parable of the mustard seed. Another parable about the Kingdom of God. Jesus reminds us that mustard seeds are tiny. And so when he begins by comparing the kingdom of God to a mustard seed, that must have sounded irreverent or even blasphemous to his first listeners. God is great and mighty. There is no God like our God. 
And then you compare his kingdom to a mustard seed? Sure, Jesus, this is extreme. This is way over the top. But he doesn't leave it at that. The kingdom of God is not a mustard seed that stays in your jar of thick, grainy Dijon mustard. Rather, it is a mustard seed that gets used for a certain purpose. It gets planted in the garden. And as it grows, it becomes big. In fact, it becomes much bigger than all the other plants in the garden. Yes, there are other plants that are bigger. There are cedar trees and redwoods and what have you. But in the garden, the mustard tree is the giant. Some species of mustard can grow up to 10 or 15 feet tall. And they develop branches on which birds can perch and even make nests. Well, the meaning of the parable is, is simple and straightforward. The kingdom of God starts off small. It has an insignificant beginning, but eventually it becomes something large and impressive. Not only that, it also becomes something which provides a safe and nurturing environment. That's why the Lord Jesus mentions the birds. In the days of the Lord Jesus, the kingdom of God was breaking in through His person and work. That didn't take place in the big, important centers of the Roman Empire, but in Palestine. Promised land, yes, it was a sort of economic and political crossroads. It was an important strategic place to occupy but it was not a major social and cultural center of the world. And Galilee, where Jesus began His ministry, and where He is at this point, when He's telling these parables, Galilee was definitely the backwater of Palestine. As we've noted before, that was Major League Hick country. Things started off small. However, as time rolled on, the kingdom of God as represented in the person and work of Christ and the preaching of Christ, His own preaching, but also the preaching of the apostles and the early church. Well, that kingdom, through all that, it grew and expanded throughout the world, not only the Roman world, but also the global world. The mustard seed, surprise, it's grown. It's continuing to grow. And wherever the gospel is preached, the kingdom of God breaks in. And still today, at first, it appears small. It appears insignificant. But gradually, slowly, usually imperceptibly, it does grow. And as the kingdom of God breaks in, safety and nurture are provided for its citizens. Well, let's parse that out a little bit for a moment. What is this safety and nurture that people find in the kingdom of God? In the Old Testament, we can find this worked out in any number of places. Let's just take one example. Psalm 27. David was suffering and experiencing some kind of hardship. We're not told what it was, nor does it matter. But yet he confesses 
Right at the very beginning of his psalm, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? God is David's safe place. God will set him high upon a rock so that his enemies, try as they might, they can't reach and they can't touch him. When we see God as our King, when we look to Him in faith, we can be sure that He too, He will place us on a high rock. He will protect us. He will do good for us. Listen to David's confession at the end of Psalm 27. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Notice how he says that he is confident that he will see God's goodness already in the land of the living. Means he's going to see God's goodness when he dies. For sure, everybody will. But already now, in the land of the living, while he's got flesh and blood and his heart is beating, neurons are firing. Even in this life, he will see that God is a good king who provides safety and nurture for his people. And so will you. That was the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the classic passage where this is worked out, I think you can almost guess what it is. It's Romans 8, 28 to 39. Paul reminds us that God works for the good of those who love him. And he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Because we have Jesus Christ as our Savior, we can be assured of safety and nurture in God's kingdom. Jesus is the guarantee. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And then we're comforted to know that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Absolutely nothing. Paul says, even if we were to face trouble or hardship or persecution, whatever it might be, you name it, we can know that God cares for us in a way that no one else can, in a way that no one else ever will. In the kingdom of our Father, we are truly safe. Now, how can we further take this knowledge of what the kingdom of God is like into our lives? Well, let me mention a couple of ways. In the the first place, it gives us perspective. It gives us the big picture of what's happening around us. The kingdom isn't what you think. It doesn't begin with pomp and glory, with with power. It starts as a mustard seed, tiny and insignificant. But it grows into something large with the passage of time. And what that time is, we don't know. 
In other words, never despise the day of small things. As Zechariah says in chapter 4, don't despise the day of small things. And then he, he also says in Zechariah 4, 6, not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Where the Spirit works, the kingdom will come and grow. Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit. In God's time and in God's way. The second, and connected to that, we must learn to rest in God and in His ways. It is His kingdom. He sees fit to begin and work in ways that are easily despised, even by those who are outwardly religious, those who other people consider to be religious. Israel, the people of Israel, the Jews, they expected rockets glaring and fireworks exploding, and they expected spectacle when the Messiah would come. To them and to us, God says, rest in me and trust in my ways. I think this is most explicitly worked out in Isaiah 55, 8-11. And perhaps these words were even in the mind of our Lord Jesus when He, he said these things. Maybe, I don't know. But Isaiah 55, 8-11, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You see, the Word is sufficient. Let's learn to rest with that. Loved ones, the kingdom of God indeed touches your life today. As you go into this new week, do so with the realization that God is your King. He's not a king who's distantly removed from you, who's unconcerned with you. This king has a relationship with you. He loves you. And he rules your life in all its details, even to the most mundane things. And as we continue to look to Christ, our Savior in faith, we can be confident that we're a part of this growing kingdom. We can be comforted knowing that we have safety and nurture in this kingdom. It's a place we're going to grow and be protected. And we can look forward to the day when the kingdom will come in all its fullness. Let's pray. Lord God, our King and Father, we thank and praise You for Your hand of power and Your heart of love. We thank You that we know You as our King and as our Father. There is no other like You. There is no other to whom we can turn. You have always been the God of Your people, a faithful, loving, sovereign God. Teach us more and more to understand Your kingdom, 
Lead us with your Holy Spirit to be good citizens of your kingdom. Help us to trust your sovereign power in our lives and in the lives of others. With your Spirit, please give us more grace so that we see the big picture, that we never despise the day of small things. Please help us to rest in you and in your ways at all times. Help us with all this until the fullness of your kingdom comes with the return of Christ our Savior. Lord God, please make that day come quickly. O Lord, You are our helper. We are helpless by ourselves. Have mercy on us, Your humble servants. We pray in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.